the first read, part of the reading is um, from St. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes to his Father's glory with the holy angels. And the second part of our reading this morning is from uh, Revelations 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be with their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Anne. So as we'd already said today, today is the 100th First World War ended. So if ever there was a year to reflect on the horrors and the lessons of that dreadful conflict, surely this year is. So I'm going to consciously focus on that war today, but in doing so, also draw some spiritual lessons for the present, when we are rightly remembering the dead and injured from all subsequent wars too. I want to start by briefly outlining the background to World War I, why it happened, who were the main warring powers, and how one particular royal family were so intimately involved. And we'll begin with the latter, uh, for a picture is about to come on the screen now, of a wedding, a wedding in 1894 in Coburg in Germany. It's been colorized, making it seem a lot more real. And my question to you is, do you recognize the elderly lady in the center at the front? Does anyone know who that is? Right, Queen Victoria. Also in that photo are many of her grandchildren, including these three men. We can have the next slide now. Do you recognize them? 
they are on the left-hand side. Tsar Nicholas II of Russia. In the middle, King George V of Great Britain. And on the right, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany. All cousins, all grandchildren of the grandmother of Europe, Queen Victoria. And in the case of George and Nicholas, there's a striking resemblance too, as the next photo captures particularly well. And just to connect it to the present, one woman would have learned about all of this on the needs of her grandfather, George V. And we can see her now. Here is it? The Queen. There she is. Just imagine what the story she must have heard as she grew up and spent time with her grandfather. But I have to say, I think we all have to say, that it's nothing short of astonishing that a war which caused the deaths of an estimated 9 million combatants and 7 million civilians was presided over by three cousins who would have known each other so well. Our Queen's own grandfather and her two great uncles. Of course, they had governments too, and much of the pressure towards war in the end came from them. And yet, when asked about World War I, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany sarcastically remarked, if my grandmother had been alive, she would never have allowed it. A grandmother he adored reflected in how in 1901, when it became clear she was dying, he rushed back to England and to the Isle of Wight to be with her. And when she died, the person in whose arms she was held was his. He helped to lay out her body. And so at her funeral, the two people who rode behind her in the casket, behind her casket, were Kaiser Wilhelm and his uncle, Edward VII, the new king. And yet if the relationship between Queen Victoria and the Kaiser was so close, it was the complete opposite with Edward VII. They loathed each other, their poor relationship no doubt contributing towards the escalation towards war prior to Edward's death in 1910. Here they are together in a staged photo. But whilst they were appearing for these photos there, the reality is, in the Edwardian era, that Germany was desperately striving to rival Britain's sea power. And Britain was desperate to hinder Germany's threat to her domination of global trade. But George V didn't have that same difficult relationship with the Kaiser. He was no warmonger, in fact, and neither were the dominant players in the British government. So as late as July 1914, the British Liberal Prime Minister Herbert Asquith was quoted as saying, there was no reason why we should be anything other than spectators. The cabinet, parliament and public opinion all agreed and the government tried hard to defuse the crisis. And Nicholas and Wilhelm, though not very close, still had a warm relationship as telegrams between them in the summer of 2014 reveal. Typically signed off as, as uh, your loving Nicky, one example from St. Petersburg to Berlin said this, I'm so glad you are back. In this serious moment, I appeal to you to help me. An ignoble war has been declared to a weak country. The indignation in Russia shared fully by me is enormous. I foresee that very soon 
I shall be overwhelmed by the pressure forced upon me and be forced to take extreme measures that will lead to war. To try and avoid such a calamity as a European war, I beg you, in the name of our old friendship, to do what you can to stop your allies from going too far. And then in the reply from Wilhelm to Nicholas, we read this. I fully understand how difficult it is for you and your government to face the drift of your public opinion. Therefore, with regard to the hearty and tender friendship which binds us both from long ago with firm ties, I'm exerting my utmost influence to induce the Austrians to deal straightly, to arrive at a satisfactory understanding with you. I confidently hope that you will help me in my efforts to smooth over difficulties that may still arise. Signed off as your very sincere and devoted friend and cousin, Willie. Yet in the end, as we know, war came because of the multiple alliances that had been built up supposedly to prevent war. The alliances in the east were between the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Germany and between Russia and Serbia. So when a Serbian assassinated the heir to the Austrian-Hungarian throne, Franz Ferdinand, those four countries ended up on opposite sides. That started the war in Central Europe. Yet very quickly, the alliance between Britain, France and Russia and between Britain and Belgium escalated things still further. The trigger was the decision of Germany to launch a surprise invasion of Luxembourg, France and Belgium, which turned public opinion in Britain dramatically. The German government had decided that Belgium would become a vassal state with its ports at their military disposal as bases threatening England. And with their stated desire to ensure security for the German Reich in West and East for all imaginable time, Germany planned to annex large parts of northern France, including the Channel Coast, imposing a crippling financial indemnity, making France economically dependent on Germany and excluding all British commerce. It led the social reformer Beatrice Webb to write that even staunch liberals agree that we had to stand by Belgium. They thought Britain had to resist such a direct threat to its own security and uphold the foundations of international law and order against militarism and Prussianism, which the suffragette leader, Emmeline Pankhurst, declared to be masculinity, carried to the point of obscenity. And so Britain and France joined the war on 4th of August 1914, the horrors of which had never been seen before. Here are a set of photos that have recently been colourised to, to mark this 100th year anniversary, which just brings home that they look just like us. They were people just like us. Here in this first photo, you can see a German prisoner of war being led away by a British Tommy. And behind him, a huge tripod used to take pictures like this, weighing down another Tommy behind. And then others, which we'll flick through now, show the reality of life in the trenches. 
Yeah, they're playing a game of cards. And in that final picture there, you see a group of British servicemen studying a map, preparing for the next advance. It got me thinking that if they'd been born in our generation, the nearest they would have got to this scene would have been an orienteering exercise at university. Yet the appalling reality for British men aged 18 to 22 in 1914 was that one-third of the entire male population of that age lost their lives in the war, not to mention probably almost as many who were injured and traumatized. Barely a family was untouched. And it devastated whole communities too, thanks to the policy of creating POWs battalions prior to general conscription. This was based on the idea that men would be more inclined to enlist in the army if they knew that they were going to serve alongside their friends and family. And it worked. Now, it it wasn't all bad, and it certainly strengthened the friendships and camaraderie of those on the front line. But it led to situations like this in the Battle of the Somme in 1916. The 11th Service Battalion of Accrington of the East Lancashire Regiment, better known as the Accrington's Pals, were ordered to attack Serre, the most northerly part of the main assault, on the opening day of the Battle of the Somme. Of an estimated 700 Accrington Pals who took part in that attack, 235 were killed and 350 were wounded within the space of 20 minutes. On that horrific day, the worst in the history of the British Army, 57,000 British soldiers lost their lives. And why were the numbers of casualties so great compared to previous wars? It was the tactics and strategies adopted by generals on both sides of the war that had completely failed to adapt quickly enough to the rapid developments in military technology that had by that time occurred. Machine guns, artillery shells and poison gas rendered trench warfare ineffective and hugely costly in human lives. And so the vast majority of British troops sent to the Western Front, dug into trenches, made no doubt more than a few miles of progress in two to three years at the expense of millions of lives. Whereas modern warfare today has allowed the human cost of a conventional war to be limited in 1914 to 18, it had had the opposite effect. Yet eventually, after four years of slog, an Allied counter-offensive known as the Hungry Hundred Days Offensive brought about the end of the war. It began on the 8th of August 1918 at the Battle of Amiens. The battle involved over 400 tanks and 120,000 British, Dominion and French troops. And by the end of its first day, a gap of 24 kilometres long had been created in the German lines. The defenders displayed a marked collapse in morale. In nearly four weeks of fighting from that day, over 100,000 German prisoners were taken. 
And as news of Germany's impending military defeat spread throughout the German armed forces, the threat of mutiny was rife. The collapse of the Balkans meant that Germany was about to lose its main supplies of oil and food. Its reserves had been used up too at the very time that more than 10,000 US troops were arriving per day, together with American oil. So with the German military hamstrung and with widespread lots of confidence in the Kaiser, Germany moved towards surrender. The terms of the armistice were agreed and the Kaiser, kings and other hereditary rulers were all removed from power. Wilhelm flee in exile to the Netherlands. And yet, the stripping and reduction of the boundaries of Germany after the war, as well as the harsh final financial reparations imposed on them, sowed major seeds of resentment, which during the Great Depression of the 1930s, triggered by the Wall Street crash, led to the rise of Hitler. He set out to right the wrongs as he saw it of the post-World War I settlement. And so tragically, after all the suffering of the war to end all wars, as it was known at the time, it would not be until after another world war in 1945 that the seeds of lasting peace would be sown. Learning from the mistakes of the 1920s, the American Truman Plan ensured that Germany and Japan were demilitarized yet also supported financially to ensure their, economic, their economies flourished. And it worked. 70 years of peace has been the consequence. The standard of living and the security we take for granted now was earned through those two horrific conflicts, the likes of which we hope to never see again. It was a sacrifice of those many millions killed and wounded troops and civilians in those two world wars that brought us life, prosperity, and peace. And it's that idea of sacrifice bringing life that I just want to briefly explore further now as we reflect spiritually on the many conflicts we remember today. For good did triumph over evil, certainly in the Second World War. And enemies were loved in the way that they were treated subsequently, the harmonious relationships between Germany, Japan, France, Britain, and America today bear that out. But coming back to the First World War, the closeness of the powers' battalions meant that no other verse of Scripture had greater resonance in the trenches than this. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Words that in a Sunday school educated generation would have just rolled off the tongue. And the willingness to risk making the ultimate sacrifice coming from the example and teaching of Jesus is illustrated by two stories of bravery from that war that I want to share briefly now. We've already heard about the role that one Willie played in the lead up to it, the Kaiser himself. And now here is the story of another the most famous army chaplain of the 20th century, Woodbine Willie. And we can see him on the screen now. Born Geoffrey Kennedy, he was an English Anglican priest and poet. On the outbreak of war, he volunteered as a chaplain to the army on the Western Front, where he gained his nickname 
for giving Woodbine cigarettes along with spiritual aid to injured and dying soldiers. In 1917, he was awarded the military cross at the Messine Ridge after running into no man's land to help the wounded during an attack on the German front line. His citation read as follows. For conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty, he showed the greatest courage and disregard for his own safety in attending to the wounded under heavy fire. He searched shell holes for his own and enemy wounded, assisting them to the dressing station. And his cheerfulness and endurance had a splendid effect upon all the ranks in the front-line trenches, which he constantly visited. It was never forgotten, and his name is still honoured today. And now, here is an anonymous story, taken from a letter published under the heading The Religion of the Ordinary Soldier, published in The Spectator in December 1916. It reads like this. During a discharge of gas at the beginning of July along our front, one of the cylinders was displaced by the near bursting of an enemy shell. It turned the nozzle round and the gas began to pour into our own trench. One of my lads, who was acting as orderly, heard from the communication trench that something was happening and he ran into the front line. He ran forward unprotected, tugged at the cylinder and pointed its nozzle outwards again before he fell unconscious. He died a few minutes afterwards. Those who saw it told me it was a quite spontaneous action. This boy would have told you that if his name was on a shell, it was no use running away. But what is this? But he saved others. Himself he could not save. This Christian instinct of self-sacrifice is a part of the manhood of thousands of our ordinary soldiers. It was true then in 1916. And ultimately, of course, that Christian instinct of self-sacrifice is taken from the example and command of Jesus himself. For Jesus knew that this was his destiny as his death upon the cross would remove the barrier between us and our God, the holy God. The punishment we deserved would be his. It was because of his love for us all that Jesus made that ultimate sacrifice and his instruction to us in response to his forgiveness and mercy was unequivocal. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Reflecting his words in the first passage we heard read, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For the Christian way of life is a life of willing sacrifice, of following the example of Jesus. But we do not do it to earn God's favour, but out of gratitude for what God has already done for us through Jesus as the most famous verse in the Bible tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And ultimately, 
It is that promise of eternal life for all those who choose to receive that gift which gave the hope that millions of brave soldiers needed in those two world wars as it still does among soldiers today. And yet it's not just soldiers who need it. It's the source of hope and of comfort and of courage and of inspiration and of truth and of goodness and of love. For us all. For ultimately, good does triumph over evil. It did in that Second World War, which brought us lasting peace, which we still enjoy today. But the biggest picture of all, the greatest news of all, is that ultimately, Satan, who seeks to stir up division, hatred, hatred and warfare across the world, and always has done, He will be defeated. And he, together with all death, mourning and suffering and pain, will be gone. And heaven, the new Jerusalem, will be built. It's why the end of the Bible in the final book of Revelation, despite being very realistic about the reality of warfare through to the end of human history, finishes on such a high. The second reading we heard earlier was taken from it. And so fittingly, we're going to finish with it again now.